Pastor Corey here with Heights Church. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about Heights Church, simply go to weareheights.org or follow us on our Facebook page. If you're looking to get plugged into a church, feel free to reach out to us via our website by simply clicking contact, and we will help you find a similar church in your area. Hope the podcast serves you well, and thanks for tuning in. Well, good morning, church family. You just want to start off the sermon by reading out of the Hebrew phone book. And so, and Dorn did a great job, didn't he? The hardest part about that is that man had to do it twice today. And so, uh, excited to get to be here with you, excited to, uh, to teach this text uh, alongside you. Also excited to see y'all with a lot of folks like having the word out, having their phone out. One of the things of Nehemiah is he's calling people, Ezra Nehemiah is calling the people back to the word of God. And so just to get to see the word out was uh, beautiful. Our first service, if, if you can imagine, was almost completely full. Uh, last week, the second service, this service was almost completely full. If you were in here, at some point, those two are going to probably come together. Uh, we're going to have to figure it out. But uh, it's been beautiful to just see the people of God with the word of God. Amen. Amen. And so let me start this thing by uh, casting a little vision for you and hopefully setting up uh, the sermon as well. Uh, when you look around the room here, there's a handful of us. Uh, I, don't, I, I wrote my notes about half, but I was wrong. The first service, I said, I asked how many people had been a part of what I'm about to say, and only like 10 people out of 200 raised their hands. So I was way off. But if you look around here, uh, similar to Nehemiah, there's many of us that played a role in building out this room, building out the building, building out the space now that we have here uh, on these grounds. And And what's interesting is you can come in and it can feel just kind of ordinary for you. Like if you just showed up in the last 12 months, perhaps, I've had a conversation with a lot of people like, well, I've said, we've only been here for like a year. And they're like, really? I'm like, yeah, it's only been like a year. And the reality is like, they don't understand like all the work that went into like this moment right here that we had to, and we got to uh, partake in, which is okay. Uh, But it feels very ordinary, like Heights Church, Heights Community just kind of always been there and you got to show up and participate, which is unbelievable. Uh, But for those that have been here for, let's say, eight years uh, to get to this moment in time, it took eight years of planning. Uh, It it took eight years of casting vision. It took eight years of people giving financially to two different uh, capital campaigns. The first capital campaign took place, and we didn't have a building. We just met in a YMCA and did set up and tear down. Any of you were here for a part of that? Mark, four, five, six of you, seven of you. Okay, seven of you. And so we, that was the first campaign. I was like, hey, we don't have any money. We're a brand new church plant. If we're ever going to move out of here, we got to save up some money. And the church pledged a half a million dollars to a vision, which is unbelievable. That was over eight years ago. We had a second campaign. Well, first we had COVID. Many of you endured COVID with us. That had to happen for us to get here. And we told people to stop giving to a capital campaign if they needed to. And in the church, we still got to give away $100,000 in the midst of COVID to people in our congregation, as well as people outside of our congregation, which wasn't ordinary at all for churches at that time, was it? And this is an extraordinary work that God allowed us to do. And then we fired up a second capital campaign to be able to get to this moment. And the church pledged $130,000 more than we even asked for, which was not an ordinary thing. It was most certainly an extraordinary reality that we got to set in. And so we've raised and pledged $1.2 million to get here. I wrote down some other things that had to happen as part of our prayerful planning 
process like Nehemiah. We had to build teams, assemble teams, cast vision. We had focus groups. We had dinners with people. We had developed materials, pledge cards, booklets. We've included architects, engineers, project managers, schematics. We literally tore down every wall in this mug. We tore down every single wall in here, except for the bathrooms. If you're like, the bathrooms could use some work. We just like the 90s, okay? And so we left them. We enjoy going back in time. There's only like three things that happen in that room anyway, and it doesn't even look that glamorous for for it to happen, does it? We tore down every single uh, wall in this place. And in the midst of that, okay, the point is this. Some of us show up, been a part of that whole process. And we show up on a Sunday, we're like, dang, this is extraordinary. Like it's unbelievable what we have been able to see and to experience. There's also some that show up, and while you've been moved by the Spirit, you're like, this is just kind of what we've always done. It's all you No, because it's the season that you have stepped into. And so while extraordinary things happen, it is very ordinary. In the midst of everything that took place over eight years, though, there was just a lot of ordinary days. There was just a lot of giving. There was a lot of serving. There was a lot of packing moving trucks a couple different times, unpacking moving trucks. A lot of the ordinary work uh, of God that God had called us to. But what has happened then is like an extraordinary work of the Spirit in our church body. Uh, the growth that we experienced here at Heights Community, if you've been here in the last year, uh, we projected what happened over the course of 18 months, and it happened in four. It happened in four. We doubled in size within four months of coming into this space, and it has not ceased to grow. If you've been here for longer than six weeks, you know that to be true. What happens then, while that is a, not an ordinary work, but an extraordinary work of the Spirit for sure, because folks have come in then, they're kind of seeing this as some of a, an ordinary thing. It's kind of all you know. What happens is with the, when you doubled in size, then there's a great deal of folks who have not stepped in, not stepped in to serve, not stepped in to give. And so today I want to give you an invitation to do that. Uh, I want to further ex- give that invitation in this way, though, first. Put a pin in that. Uh, I was reading about this last week by a gentleman by the name of Max Weber who wrote a book in 1905. Uh, he wrote this book on Christian ethic, Christian work ethic specifically. And the book, he's a, a Christian sociologist, and he he argues that if you, those who give financially as well as give of their time uh, to the church body actually see better, like they see a closer relationship to Jesus, they see more presence with Jesus, which we know, but actually the culture and the country that they reside in looks differently when people move towards God in that way. And then he lays out, think about this, in 1905, he laid out, if you want to know whether or not your country is moving further away from God and further away from the gospel, some telltale signs of that will be there will be very high unemployment rates, although there are jobs available. Anybody see this in our country right now? The unemployment rate is astronomical, but the job field is wide open. How often do you see now hiring signs all across the, all across the city, all across the state? Am I the only one that sees this right now? Okay, I need you to talk to me a little bit, all right? And so everywhere, they're everywhere, right? How, what is that? That's a telltale sign, right? That not only is, is the church in some ways remaining silent, perhaps not modeling a Christian work ethic, but also then the country is responding because as the church goes, so also the country goes. We talked about the church being a gate last week. We're gonna talk about it again this week. And so I wanna pin that and circle back around. Whenever, half, whenever your church doubles inside, then that's half of the individuals then are not serving in some capacity. Again, this is not a dig. This is just the reality of our situation. Also then, there's a reality where over half of the individuals that come to Heights have not partook in our current capital campaign. Now, to be clear, we're doing great financially. We just wrote, check this out. We just wrote a check for $225,000 to pay towards our construction loan. This is the moment where you clap. That's a great time. 
I don't know if you've ever written a $225,000 check before, but it'll make David Steen sweat a little bit. That's what I heard. But it's incredible. Like, that's an extraordinary work of God. It's not like a small thing. We're doing great financially. People have given, overgiven to all of our campaigns. At the same time, I think I would be remiss in not inviting you into closer proximity to Jesus by challenging you to go, hey, if you want to lead your family closer to the Lord, then serve with your family. That just makes sense, doesn't it? And so when we invite you to serve on hospitality, to to serve Dungate back in the nursery of kids, we're doing it. Yes, there's a need, right? We we just had 18 kids born in the last year. I know of 17 more women that are pregnant right now, all right? This church is blowing up. Praise Jesus. Like people are putting four, you know, help wanted signs on their door. We hired five people in the last year. Like it's an extraordinary work of God. I'm not getting up here making a plea because we're hurting. I'm getting up here pleading as a pastor because I want your proximity to be closer to Jesus, right? And, and he uses that. The ordinary everyday stuff, just serving on a team. Yes. Just giving. Yes. And so like we owe $176,000 on our construction loan, which sounds like a lot of money. We'll have that paid off. No problem. Here's what I also know. It's not that much money for a church our size. If the people who have not yet given, based off the math, give $97 a month, that's like one less trip to TJ Maxx for some of y'all. <laughs> one, wait, one less trip or a TJ Maxx? <laughs> yeah, yeah. They still have TJ Maxx's. They don't have one less trip though. <laughs> it's like canceling, not canceling. That's a strong word in our culture. It's like not going to Chick-fil-A twice with your kids. You know what I mean? It's like, it's not a lot of money for for some people it is, but for some, you're like, that's I could do 10 times that. $97 a month would pay off our construction loan. We're going to do it anyway, but I want to give you the invitation because the quicker we get that paid off, when we launch our next campaign in March, which is coming, it's all been a plan. There's a plan for three campaigns to be able to get all this paid off. By God's grace, it's going unbelievable. In March 25, we'll launch a, a very significant campaign to start building out. We're out, of, we're out of kid space. We don't have any more office space. The only place of storage we have is right there. By God's grace, we have a beautiful building. It's an extraordinary work of the Spirit. And also, like, we've got to find a place to put 18 more kids. Okay? We had seven babies have to get brought into the service by covenant members four weeks ago, which is okay. Praise God for having your kids in worship, yeah? But also, we're not being hospitable for folks that are not as mature in the gospel. And so we want to be able to uh, accommodate them in healthy ways. And so I want to invite you then to, through your church center app, man, we invite you to give all the time. We're not give all the time. We actually forget to mention tithing. If you're new, I regularly forget to even mention it. We invite you to serve all the time. I want to invite you today. Church center app, man, I want to overflow the emails of those leaders that are leading that team to get us set up for the spring and for the summer and for the fall months, man. I want to see 50, 60, 70 people like volunteering for real. And then I want to give you the invitation to give to our current campaign. Uh, make a dent in that thing. Let's get it done so we can have more space for our babies back in the back. Amen? Now, that is, that is vision. That is also part of uh, the sermon. Much of that is going to feel like just ordinary work, serving on hospitality, serving in kids, serving elsewhere, giving financially, setting it up on auto pay. It's going to feel like ordinary work, but it's an extraordinary work of the Spirit. It's an extraordinary work. Not only has our church grown numerically, oh, but spirit, I talked to someone yesterday. They're like, don't even talk about the numbers. Talk about how the families have grown spiritually. And I was like, oh my gosh, yes. It's an extraordinary work of the spirit that we get to see uh, in and through our church family. So the big idea for today is this. God makes the ordinary extraordinary. God takes what is insignificant and gives it significance. Right? Makes the unrighteous righteous, the unholy holy. What has, who has no identity, identity, who has pur- no purpose, purpose. God makes the ordinary uh, extraordinary. Three points. Uh, if it goes anything like the first service, we'll do pretty well together. Uh, three points. 
based off this text. I'm only going to preach the first six verses. Don't worry. We don't have to have lunch together or anything. The principle, the problem, and the promise. The principle, the problem, uh, and the promise is what we have. Uh, Beginning here with the principle. Nehemiah 3, uh, verses 1 and 2 is where we're going to start. Everybody ready? If you're ready, say ready. All right, let's hit it. Then Eliashim, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They, somebody say, consecrated. consecrated. Consecrated it. Set its doors. They consecrated as far as the tower of the hundred, as far as the tower of Hananel. Uh, and next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, uh, built. So I, you guys know I'm kind of a nerd. I'm reading four or five different commentaries to be able to preach Nehemiah for you. I love it. Just kind of love absorbing a bunch of information that no one else wants to read. Uh, when you get to this chapter in the commentaries, I, I found a combined total one paragraph. There's one paragraph on chapter three. Everybody's like, we ain't touching that thing. Well, turns out up in Heights, uh, we don't have anything real sexy for you. We just like to preach straight through the book of the Bible because uh, we love the Bible. Amen? And so that's what I got for you. We have a saying, when in doubt, preach the text is what we say all the time. When in doubt, uh, preach the text. They had one paragraph. I don't even know that I believed in what it said. And so we're not going to stick to that or use that even as a line. And so what I did this week was uh, I just kind of thought to myself, okay, where, where, how do I, where do I take them to what's something like clearly uh, identifiable that kind of leaps out of the chapter? And, and what that is is a list of names uh, that none of us know how to say uh, because the majority of us went to public school, right? And so like we don't know what to do when you, when you have more consonants and vowels, you're like, Consonant, is that a name? No, that just is evidence you went to public school. And so what do you do when you're like saying a bunch of consonants that don't make any sense? But there's all these uh, names, and then not only is there a name, but then there's a purpose that, that each individual has, and then there's a finished project on there. And so I almost went with that at some points, but that was uh, way too difficult. And so then I started thinking, what else is clearly uh, identifiable? And the word in there, consecrated. They, Eliash consecrated the sheep gate. And so then I got to thinking, okay, okay, how, how, where else do I see consecration? What is consecration? What does that mean? It's, oh, it's just another word for sanctification or to be set apart or to be made holy or to be made righteous or to be made clean. And then I thought, we can run that line. I can run a line on, on, a, on a sermon that lands us in the gospel about consecration and sanctification, which are big $100 words, I understand. The overarching theme of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is renewal and worship. It's renewal and worship. This is what they're doing. The text, the chapter today, are just ordinary people with ordinary skills that get to do an extraordinary work. That's why God makes the, takes what is ordinary and makes it extraordinary. And so these priests come about and they start with the sheep gate. Now the sheep gate is no ordinary gate. The sheep gate is where the sacrifices would come in for the temple. And so it wasn't an ordinary gate at all. It was an extraordinary gate. And it's a gate that is worth being consecrated by the priest. And so the reason they would start there, they consecrate there, that what that means is they set that gate apart as holy. They set that, they sanctify that gate. They cleanse that gate. They do ceremonial cleanings on that gate so that the sheep can come in through that gate. Cats out the bag. They didn't, they didn't put a lot of effort in the naming things, did they? They're like, I don't know, Bill, what comes through here? He's like, sheep. I'm like, all right, let's name it sheep gate. Real simple stuff, right? Just like the dung gate. What do you think they did there? Or the fish gate. What do you think that they did there? And so it was no ordinary gate. And so they begin with this 
gate. They sanctify it, consecrate it, set it apart. And then, listen, then the building of the wall happens in a counterclockwise sort of a way. And so if you pull up your church center app that you're going to later volunteer on and look into this capital campaign pledge about, it'll have in there uh, sermon notes. And I put on there a diagram or like a map for you. You can kind of see what these gates where these gates lie. So the priests begin with this gate and they end with this gate, which right there is already a foreshadowing that there is someone who is coming, someone who's better, who's both the beginning and the end of worship for us. All of our worship will be found in and through Christ Jesus. And so they begin with this gate, set this gate apart, because if the sheep, if it's not consecrated, the sheep can't come through, which means there cannot be a sacrifice, which means there cannot be an atonement for sin there at the temple or forgiveness for sin at the temple. And I would argue then there cannot be renewal where there is not a forgiveness for sins. There cannot be worship where there's, not re- where there's not renewal. There can't even be worship where there's not atonement or forgiveness for sins. And so it begins and ends there so that they can renew worship. That's all Ezra and Nehemiah is about, calling people back to the word, calling people back to worshiping through the word. And so they restore that first. They consecrate that first. You guys tracking with me so far? All right, so what do we know then about consecration? Where do we see the ordinary being made or set apart as extraordinary. Well, I said to you last week, you are a gate. If you missed that sermon, listen to it. You are a gate. You are the safety. You are the one that has been set apart. I said specifically, men, you are the gate for your family. I said, where it applies. I said, uh, women, you are the gate for your children. I said, those that are individuals and families, you are a gate of safety for the church. And not only that, then the church is a gate of safety for the culture and for the community around us. This is the way that God has designed it. God has set us apart as the church to be gates. Whenever you come to faith, you're not just coming to faith, kind of white knuckling it, hoping to make it into heaven one day. You're actually given a new identity. You are renewed. You are made something. You are set apart as holy, set apart as righteous, even when you're not those things. That's what happens. God consecrates you upon professing faith in him. Can I just, speaking of being a nerd, can we just talk about systematic theology while I got you? On the line right here? Okay. Put that up for me. Justified, sanctified. Listen, uh, whenever you come to faith, there's a, there's a billion things that happen, okay? Uh, God doesn't save you through theology. God saves you and then gives you theology to help you understand what the heck just happened to me. So this is that moment where God's going to explain to you a little bit about what the heck just happened to you. Uh, whenever you profess faith in Jesus, it's because God the Father has called you to himself through the work of his Son. And what that means then is whenever you profess faith in God, it's because God, by his grace alone, has done something called justified. He's justified you. You've experienced something called justification. What's that mean, pastor? What that means is this. While you're standing there with a smoking gun in your hand, dead to rights in sin, guilty under the weight of the law and God's expectations, the father looks at King Jesus in your place and goes, hey, I'm going to kill him for you instead of you. He's going to be justified in your place. He's going to take the consequences of your sin. Legally, we're going to off Jesus with that gun so that you can come into relationship with me. That's why Jesus goes to the cross. You guys still with me? And so there's a justification. God is the perfect judge, looks at you, blood stained hands, and goes, hey, in the midst of your sin and debauchery, listen to me, not guilty. In the midst of it, you're innocent. In the midst of it, you've been made holy. In the midst of it, you've been seen as righteous. In the midst of it, you're seen as good. 
Now, you're recognized as a sinner, most certainly, but you are simultaneously a saint, as Martin Luther would say. You are simultaneously sinner and saint. We still tracking together on that? There is a new identity that has been given to you. You have been rebuilt, to use the language of Nehemiah. We still tracking on that. Then secondarily, put that back up for me. I need that the whole time. Um, it's like part of my notes. And so I have no idea what I brought this for. I have no clue what we're doing with that. Secondly, then, you are, simultaneously, you are sanctified. And so first you have a, another $100 word, positionally sanctified, but then you are progressively sanctified. Not in the use of the word as the way our culture would use it, otherwise that would mean regression. But the way that the scriptures talk about it, the way that the scriptures talk about it is progressive. You are progressively made to look more and more like Jesus. Now, it's not your good works that save you, but listen, it is your good works that help you look more and more like Christ, right? And so by the power of the Holy Spirit, as you engage the word of God, that's a good work for you. You, my, 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 you begin to look more and more like Christ. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, as you engage God in prayer, his spirit shows up and he says, hey, you're already redeemed. You're already saved. This is just a gift, a gift that you get to have. And as you engage in this gift, well, then lo and behold, you look more and more like Christ. As you engage your missional community, you're like, I don't even like my missional community. Exactly. You get to confess that. And what happens? You look more and more like Christ. And then you show up and you're like, I didn't like you bunch of baboons. Then you get to give them grace and you look more like Christ. And so you He continues by the power of his spirit to make you look more and more like the sun. You begin to move from, as we're going to read in a minute, from glory to glory to look like Christ. And so I don't know if if I missed it here, but at the end of the day, you do nothing. (laughs) The Holy Spirit does everything and then invites you to respond. He's inviting you to respond to your God-given, justified identity. Are we still together? Okay. People teach, write a litany of books on this. You got six minutes. Hebrews 2.11 says this, for the doubters, there's the word of God. For he who sanctifies, that's the Lord, and those who are sanctified, that's those who profess faith in Jesus, all have one source. This is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. And so what the writer of Hebrews contextually there is saying, God sanctifies you, God has consecrated you, God has set you apart for his Good work. This happens by the work of the Father, through the Son, through King Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit working in you. You don't do anything. You just believe the gospel, and then everything is given over to you. Now you get to also walk out that gospel. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this. He's gonna, this is Apostle Paul in the New Testament making mention of Moses from the Old Testament. Verse 18. And we all, this is believers, uh, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so the first text there says, hey, you are justified in Christ. You're made to look like him, even when you don't feel like it. But then you're also then allowed by the power of the Spirit to walk out something called holiness. You're allowed to walk out your identity. Paul mentions Moses. Moses would go into the tabernacle. That's the temple they would set up, tear down in the desert. He would have face-to-face encounters with God the Father. He would leave that tabernacle, and his face would shine like these lights up here are shining on me right now, like an LED, like he was going spelunking or something like His face would shine like a headlight. And he, instead of, listen, instead of owning just being set apart, instead of owning being consecrated, instead of owning being sanctified in that moment, the people were fearful to look upon him because he had, in fact, been set apart. He veils his face. He hides the glory of the Lord. And the apostle Paul says, no, 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 we're not going to be like Moses. 
No, we have been set apart from glory to glory. And as we go into the tabernacles, we're going through prayer, through the word, through community now, we are the living temple of God for crying out loud. As we engage God the Father, he actually begins to move us from glory to glory to glory. He sets us apart to be set apart from who? The world, from everything, from everyone. Not as separatists, but as gates. Oh, as gates of safety and security, a safe Heaven, haven in heaven for the world around us. You guys still with me on that? The doctrine of sanctification explains how you are moved from ordinary to extraordinary. Christianity is so much more than professing faith in Jesus and just kind of white knuckling it into the pearly gates one day. That's an ordinary life. People who aren't even Christian do that. People place their hope in all sorts of saviors and just kind of hope it works out for them. No, we've been giving something so much more, so much more. Like, do you, I'm gonna get to this in a minute, but it's worth hearing twice. Do you understand that like the ordinary work that you do matters because Christ Jesus is in you? That means you have a, it's a sacred work. <laughs> Whatever your day looks like today, because of the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit that's been promised to you from God himself, because he resides in you and has set you apart, both justified and continues to sanctify you, everything you do today has purpose because the, the Holy Spirit is in you. Like, it's a sacred work. On your way home today, it's a sacred work because you're sitting there. Like, when you're sitting, when you're sitting at Freddy's in the drive-thru because you're starving to death because your pastor overpreached today, it's a sacred work for you whenever you're there. It matters. And whenever you lose sight of what it means to be sanctified, then your work no longer feels sacred. That's the problem. Point number two. The problem, then, is that whenever you forget that you have been sanctified, you stop seeing the meaning Uh, meaningful everyday, day-to-day to-do list as something that God himself has ordained for you. Now you no longer have to profess faith in a living God. You no longer have to submit to a living God because you yourself are, in fact, God. You determines what is worthwhile and what's not. And that's what we see here in the text, Nehemiah 3, 3 through 5, the problem. Uh, The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and its doors and its bolts and its bars. And, the ne- and next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hazak, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezebel, repaired. We just need to celebrate Dorn one more time, don't we? And next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, or Bana, repaired. Uh, and next to them, the, oh, this is important, verse 5, this is where we're going to camp out, verse 5. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. Listen, but they're nobles, they're religious leaders. They're governors, those who are overseeing them, who profess faith in God, by the way, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Come on now, we see this everywhere, don't we? And so while we have ordinary people doing ordinary work, seeing extraordinary results, uh, what's true for Israel is also true for the church. Uh, There are many, and oftentimes in positions of religious leadership, uh, that see the work of God as beneath them. That's a damning thing for the church in general, and then specifically in America, yes? So we see ordinary people here in the text doing ordinary works and extraordinary results, which then means there's also then some, based off the text, who, who will not do that. There's some that are going to believe that God is beneath them. They're just a little bit more extraordinary than God. Uh, there's some that are going to view the, the seemingly meaningless work, ordinary work of God as if it's beneath them, but maybe good enough for their servants is what it said, maybe good enough for their employees, but maybe they make too much money to be on the hospitality team. They need to be in a higher leader of, higher position of leadership is kind of what is happening here. But the reality is this, man. For the 99.9% of us in the room, most days are pretty ordinary, aren't they? 
I mapped out my day for you. Um, here's kind of what it looks like. Tell me if this uh, checks out. Uh, you wake up, shuffle out of bed, stumble to the bathroom, get ready, grab kids, get them ready, drop them off, go to work, uh, dart around, hit all the appointments, yelling at kids, forget the grocery shop, hit the bedtime routine, rinse and repeat. Nailed it? Nailed it. Most days are pretty ordinary. But, but what happens whenever that, when that comes against us, this kind of legalistic, I've not been set apart, I don't have identity. When your identity that you've given to yourself is threatened on an ordinary day and you're feeling a little bit less extraordinary than you want to, then what do we do? Oh, then we just go to social media, don't we? Try to paint this beautiful picture of what our life looks like. And everybody who hearts that thing or likes it looks at it and go, that's not real life. That's not real life. The reason they like it is because they want and desire that thing. And so it, it's not real. We're like, no, you know, that's not true. Did you farted that day? You burped that day? You're a total ordinary individual, right? Like there's nothing extraordinary about your day. And I'm not downplaying like vacation or whatever, right? But that's all set apart for the most part. It's an ordinary day. And, and here it is here. We have these noblemen who have come in and they're like, no, that's beneath me. That's not worth giving over to. Other peons can work on that, but my work is above that. It's because they do not recall the reality that they have been sanctified, that they have been consecrated, that they have been set apart as holy. They forget that the Spirit of God is at work in the midst of swinging those hammers on that temple. I went to lunch a little while back with Mark Sigma. You guys know Mark Sigma now, I presume, majority of you. Heard him preach here. He's an incredible communicator. Uh, one of the most passionate men I know and one of the simultaneously most intense men I've ever sat with in my life. If you know him, you're like, that's an understatement. That dude is way more than intense. Well, we were at a Mexican joint over in St. Charles a little while back. I don't know. We're talking about something. I'm just trying to eat my chimichanga, you know? And he, like, leans in real close. And he, if you know him, he's a real close face talker. And so if you, uh, need, if you have a big bubble, he's not your guy. And so he real close face talks to me. You know, you can, like, feel his breath on your face. And he goes, do you realize that the glory of the Lord resides in this place right now? And I was like, I was just eating my chimichanga, bro, but now you got me thinking about it. He's like, no, really, like, think about it. And he's, he's very loud. He's an incredible man. He's like, no, like, the glory of the Lord, he's like louder, and we're the only ones that are being loud at this point. He's like, no, the glory of the Lord is in this place because the Holy Spirit resides in us. Like, as we're here in this room, you have no idea what the Holy Spirit is doing just by our presence alone. I'm like, bro, you preaching. We're in freaking, I don't even know, Trace Caminos or wherever we were at, you know? And he was like, no, but it's true. It's true. And in that moment, like, I needed him to remind me, like, whenever we are doing the ordinary things of life, which around Heights is eating a lot of tacos, man, the glory of the Lord is in that place with you. Because you've been sanctified and you've been set apart and you've been made as holy. And so the ordinary things of life matter because Jesus matters. The, the ordinary things of life become sacred because Jesus Christ is sacred and he resides in us by the power of our Holy Spirit, of his Holy Spirit. Whenever you forget that, then the ordinary, seemingly, seemingly insignificant things of life, they lose their value. You stop having to depend upon a God that's alive and active and, and real, and you just kind of go through the ordinary, mundane acts of life, kind of wondering why you feel disconnected from Jesus. It's because you haven't set your mind on the things above. Like, this is who Christ is. He gives us this gift. And so these noblemen here, they have forgotten that. 
Listen, just like me, some of you forget the reality. Listen, when you roll up in here, the glory of God shows up with you. Like when you go to gymnastics with your kids and you kick open, you get the whiff, that sweaty, smelly mat. I'm seeing moms make faces. Dude, the glory of the Lord rolls up in that place with you, right? Whenever you're sitting in the pickup line, judging parents for getting out of their cars, hugging their babies, the glory of the Lord is in that minivan with you, right? For students, we have a student conference coming up, right? You're bummed about having to go to junior high and high school because if we're honest, you just have to spend the majority of your time hiding and hopefully you're not being found out. Listen, when you kick open those doors, dude, the glory of the Lord is up in that mug with you. It matters. Things are sacred because Jesus Christ resides in you. You have been consecrated. You have been sanctified. You have a new identity. You have a new purpose. And then he gives you good works to be able to walk that out. So you look more and more like him. We must not be like the noblemen here that forget. And if we do forget, then we need to confess. God, I don't view your work as holy. I don't think standing out in the lobby is worthwhile. I don't want to serve in kids. I'm above that. I'm above serving kids in my missional community. I'm above serving kids back there. I don't know what you're going to do with 18 more babies show up in the next nine months. We're going to put you underneath all those babies, as a matter of fact. Dung gate back there. There's a lack of reverence that comes when you forget your identity. And yet the text, if we were to read the whole text, says it doesn't matter if you're male or female. It doesn't matter if you're a bricklayer swinging a hammer or a perfumer. All of the work matters. These people matter, man. What they do matter. They're literally walking out history that God ordained for them and said was going to happen, not only in the Bible, but in the very first sermon I told you, in tons of other documents They're walking out what the Lord said was going to happen, which is then also true for us. It doesn't matter what you do in this room, whether you're a doctor or a lawyer or, I don't know, hairstylist or a stay-at-home mama, the work matters because the Spirit of God resides in you. It's sacred work that he's been given, teacher, janitor, mechanic, handyman, whatever you do. It doesn't matter what you do. The work is significant and sacred, which then also means the work for this place specifically whether it is jumping on to a capital campaign, serving kids, hospitality, or just cutting the grass. Although you better be able to cut straight lines because they're going to call you out if you don't. <laughs> the work matters a lot to those guys back there, okay? The work is sacred, listen, because Jesus Christ resides in you by the power of his Holy Spirit. You matter. You are a gate, period. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says this. So whether you eat or drink, we got that part nailed down, Amen. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, what? Do all to the glory of God. Now, contextually here in Corinthians, he's actually talking about being with non-believers. Whether you eat or drink in the midst of non-believers, do all things unto the glory of God is what he's saying. So for the sake of mission and for the sake of renewal, because you are in fact a gate, you do all things for the glory of God because you've been set aside and consecrated just as the sheep gate was set aside and consecrated. Colossians 317 says the same thing. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Colossians is speaking specifically to Christians as an act of worship, not just mission, but also as worship. And so it's not just Nehemiah that speaks about renewal and worship. It's all of the scriptures are pointing to renewal and worship because that's what Jesus does. He renews us so that we might worship him. And in worshiping him, he continues to renew us and rebuild us over and over and over again. This is how we stabilize the foundation of the church. This is how we remain pillars to a society that could care less 
about you. It's how we remain as pillars in a society that continues to move further and further and further away from God, both economically, sociologically, psychologically, and clearly, in light of all things Christianity. How do we remain pillars? Man, we just recall our identity in Christ. And we say, Jesus, renew my vision and my worldview and my hope that you have for my family, for our church, and for our culture. And then we storm the gates of hell with the passion of Christ. No. There's the promise there that renewal and worship is not just the theme of Nehemiah, it's the theme of our lives when we understand sanctification. When we understand we've been justified, found not guilty, and we've been sanctified, which is kept not guilty by his work and not ours. And the only way that that sanctification is possible because there is a better leader that comes after Nehemiah and his name is Jesus. And let me just remind you this morning that Whenever you turn the page of the Bible in Nehemiah, you go from chapter one to chapter four, chapter two, chapter one to chapter two, you turn four months. A lot of ordinary work happened in there we don't know anything about. When you turn from chapter two to chapter three, you turn eight months at minimum of travel through the desert. A lot of ordinary work you don't know anything about. And whenever the gospels talk about Jesus born in a manger and you turn the page to chapter two, you miss 29 years of that man Fully God, fully man, working as a carpenter, swinging a hammer. Going to church, hearing the scriptures proclaimed. Parents can't find him at one time. Just a total normal experience for that family, if you know your Bible. A lot of ordinary work that was put into place so that he could do the most extraordinary thing that we've ever seen in the history of humanity, the resurrection. And so in John chapter 2, I don't think this is on the screen for you. Oh, they did put it up. Thank you. John chapter 2 says this. He's in the temple. Jesus is in the temple with his disciples. Uh, the noblemen come, similar to Nehemiah. The religious elite come. The religious leaders are in there. Those who proclaim to worship God are, are in there. Listen to this encounter, verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? So picture with me now, Jesus, however you picture him. He's not white-haired, or blonde-haired, and blue-eyed. I'll tell you that much. Uh, he's a Middle Eastern man, by the way. And so picture me standing in the temple. If you can kind of picture this big, beautiful structure, 70 times bigger than what we're standing in right now. And, and instead of being able to sit and have a church service or a gathering like this, it looks like Amazon Marketplace came to life in there. There's just people out there pimping out pigeons and goats and selling sacrifices and diminishing the, the word of God, diminishing. It's supposed to be a house of prayer, he says. It's most certainly not that, man. It's it's a marketplace instead of a temple. And so Jesus is standing in there. It's one of the few times that we see him actually get angry in the, in the scriptures. And they come to him and they say, hey, do something extraordinary for us. Prove you're not ordinary. Do something for us. What are you going to do for us? And the way he responds is so beautiful. Verse 19, Jesus answers them, destroy this temple. And in three days, I'll raise it up. Everything they worked so hard for, their religious institution, the new temple, it gets built again after Nehemiah in a much more uh, kind of beautiful and big way. He says, destroy this temple and watch this. I'll raise it up. And verse 20 says, the Jews said to them, it has taken us 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days, 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body when therefore he was raised from the dead. His disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken to him. It's the picture that in your mind, right? Like this nobleman come, the religious come, those who thought they were above God, thought they were extraordinary come. They've kind of made his temple a marketplace instead of a house of prayer for his father. It's what the scripture was, would tell us. And they say, hey, do something great for us. 
Do something extraordinary for us. And he says, oh, I'm going to do the most extraordinary thing you could ever imagine. I'm going to tear down every single bit of religious institute that you have forced upon my people and told them the opposite. Like what they thought was, what the Jew thought was, you had to work hard to get identity. You had to work hard to keep your identity. And Jesus comes on the scene preaching the gospel going, hey, I have everything you could ever desire. You want identity? It's placed in me, found in me. You want to be kept in proper standing before the Lord? Believe in me, profess faith in me and my works in your place as your substitute. He says, do something extraordinary, got it. Tear this mother down and I'm gonna build it back up. Talking about his body, right? And so the one who has swung a hammer his whole life has nails penetrating his body on the cross. The most, by the way, ordinary thing that could have happened in their time. Oh my gosh, they would line the Roman empire with crosses for miles. It was nothing extraordinary to die and be put on a cross. That was normal. That happened all the time. Oh, but the resurrection is extraordinary. And what does the resurrection reveal? That he is the gate that cannot be broken. That the one who is tore down will 100% be rebuilt in three days. And just as the sheep's gate was set apart as holy, I want to extend to you here, the only one who is actually holy becomes unholy. <laughs> the only one who is perfectly righteous becomes unrighteous. Right, the only one who doesn't deserve to be broken as he's walked in perfection becomes utterly broken. Why? For us. For we who are completely ordinary think a little too highly of ourselves oh, so that we might be given new identity and made extraordinary. That is the gospel. In the resurrection, not only does he rise to reveal all that, but then he sends us the Holy Spirit to do what? To give us new identity, justify us, and then to sanctify us, to keep us sealed in him forevermore. The message of the gospel is this. It's very simple it is finished in and through Christ Jesus. All of Nehemiah points to him, amen? All right, let's stand together and take communion. Uh, more often than not, whenever we enter into a communion, um, I say a few things the same uh, every week on purpose, and one of the things that I'll say is that this is not a religious event, this is a redemptive event. It's not a religious event, it's a redemptive event. And so communion is an opportunity to come forward, listen to me, it's an opportunity to come forward and to be rebuilt. Uh, and so every week we invite you regularly to spend some time in confession and also in repentance. And so let me set that up for you this morning, I would say, uh, the reality is this, everywhere we go, we don't feel like we take Jesus with us. Uh, we don't always uh, act as if we have been sanctified, as if we have been justified, it's some days we nail it, man, and some days we mess it up. Most days, probably. Uh, and so if you found yourself in that reality, I mean, we're, we talk about Jesus going and things being sacred because of who Christ is in you. Uh, let me give you just this moment here then to confess that, to say, God, more often than not, my life feels super ordinary. As a matter of fact, there might not be anything about my life, Lord, that even would reveal to anyone around me that I even believe the gospel. <laughs> my life looks just like everyone else's ordinary life. Uh, but you've called me to so much more. And so I would encourage you, like, just confess that to him today. Uh, and then whenever you get to come forward, I mean, by God's grace alone, perhaps you get to take communion like it's your first time today. Like, confess that weight, drop that weight off. Jesus, thank you for saving me. Thank you for sustaining me, saving me by your work, sustaining me by your work. Uh, and then if you're here in the room and you're not a believer, and there's a lot of skeptics and non-Christians that go to heights, which is one of my favorite aspects of our church. Um, if you're looking at your life and you're like, man, I've been, I've just been white knuckling everything. It's just not going well for me. Uh, you don't have to know everything about Jesus, but what you can know is he died in your place as your substitute. Uh, 
and he rose to new life so that he can give you new life and he will sustain you. And so perhaps today is the day that you go, I'm just tired of white knuckling everything in the ordinary. Give me something extraordinary. Well, his name is Jesus. And he's done everything that you cannot do to save yourself, man. He loves you as you are, but leaves you too, loves you too much to leave you uh, as you are. For those of you that are in Christ, you're gonna come forward and get to partake in communion. Now, let me read over you what the Apostle Paul says. He said, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, uh, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, uh, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Why? For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so communion is not a religious event. It's a redemptive event. It's an opportunity. It's a moment to be able to recall the faithfulness of Jesus in and through your life. It's a sacred event. Like when you come and partake, you get to partake and ingest in the Holy Spirit, man, the working, indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. And so for those of you that are Christians, I want to invite you to come with confessed hearts, with repentant hearts, and allow the Holy Spirit to do the business he promises he will. Uh, The table is open to professing Christians.